You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. The gays, we are trendsetters. Hairstyles, clothing, relationship models, sexual practices, what we are doing, wearing, and screwing today, the rest of you will be doing, wearing, and screwing tomorrow. For example, a trend we set, the gays canceled Rick Santorum before canceling Rick Santorum was cool. We canceled Rick Santorum's last name anyway, way, way back in 2003. He was then the third most powerful member of the U.S. Senate. Rick Santorum was and still is a family values, conservative, Republican, anti-choice, anti-gay, and anti-straight. Yeah, anti-straight. The man campaigned on wanting to return us to the days when people could be and were arrested for giving birth control to married straight couples. Like most politicians at the time, Republicans and Democrats, Santorum opposed gay marriage. But – He also thought gay sex should be a crime. He thought and still thinks gay people should be thrown in jail for our consensual and private sexual conduct. You know, jail, where gay sex never happens. But when Santorum compared gay couples who wanted to marry to child rapists and dog fuckers, we, the gays, my gays, we sprung into action. The gays redefined Rick Santorum's last name to mean the frothy mix of lube and fecal matter that is sometimes the byproduct of anal sex. Me and my readers, gay and straight, we did that. We canceled Rick Santorum's last name. Pennsylvania voters got around to canceling Rick Santorum's political career in 2007 when he lost his reelection campaign by nearly 20 points. And while the fact that his name had become a, an infamous dirty joke online can't be credited with his defeat, it certainly didn't help narrow the margin of that defeat. Biggest ever for a sitting U.S. senator. Republican primary voters, they got around to canceling Rick Santorum's presidential ambitions in 2012 and then again in 2016. Both times he ran for president, Rick had to address his Google problem. And he had a Google problem because the dirty definition of his last name, that frothy mix, was the first result when you Googled Santorum's name. So a socially conservative voter who saw him in a debate or on the stump in Iowa and liked what Rick had to say and wanted to learn more about Santorum would Google him and die of a heart attack. But not before they retreated to this headline in Iowa, Santorum surges from behind. Well, now, as you may have heard, CNN has finally, finally gotten around to canceling Rick Santorum. CNN had hired Rick Santorum, the family values guy who endorsed Donald fucking Trump when he dropped out of the 2016 Republican primary. They hired him to come on CNN and defend Donald Trump. The guy, not Donald Trump, Rick Santorum. He's the guy who wanted to ban birth control for straights and marriage for gays and premarital sex for everybody. And he spent the last four years as a pro-Trump political commentator. Yeah. The guy who had this to say about contraception. Contraception, the one thing that has been actually proven to bring down the abortion rate. The guy who said this, contraception, condoms, the pill, IUDs, diaphragms, the morning after pill, all of it. Rick Santorum said about contraception, it is a license to do things in a sexual realm that is counter to how things are supposed to be. That guy 
spent four years on CNN defending everything Donald grabbing by the pussy Trump said or did. And then a few weeks ago, that same guy, Rick Santorum, a.k.a. The Frothy Mix, he was speaking about the founding of the United States in front of an organization for college-age right-wing assholes, the Young America's Foundation. And, well, I'm not going to paraphrase. Take it away, Frothy Mix. We came here and created a blank slate. We, we birthed a nation from nothing. I mean, there's nothing here. I mean, yes, we have Native Americans, but, if, but candidly, that, that, there isn't much Native American culture in American culture. A blank slate, huh? How'd that happen? How did that continental slate get blanked? There were 60 million indigenous peoples in the Americas in 1492 when Columbus arrived and started enslaving and massacring people. There were 70 to 80 million people in Europe at that time. So where did those tens of millions of indigenous peoples go? Disease introduced into the Americas by Europeans wiped out most of the indigenous peoples up to 90%. And the rest, displacement and genocide nearly wiped them out. European colonists didn't birth a nation. Oh my God, that phrase alone should have gotten Rick Santorum fired. European colonists didn't stumble over an empty continent. We stole one. We stole two, and we have blood on our hands to prove it. But despite disease and genocide, Native American contributions to American culture are everywhere you care to look if you care to open your fucking eyes. From states named after Native American peoples, Kansas, Idaho, Alabama, Iowa, to states with names derived from Native American languages, Illinois, Michigan, Mississippi, Nebraska, more than half the states, the United States, were named for Native American nations or with words lifted from their languages, languages that Europeans then tried to eradicate along with the people who spoke them. And we not only have Native Americans to thank for many of the foods we regularly eat, but for federalism, for federalism itself, our federal system of government, state government, federal government, modeled in part by our founding, enslaving, genociding fathers on the Iroquois Federation. Anyway, Rick Santorum is who we always known he was. An idiot, a racist, a sexist, a homophobe, a transphobe, a heterophobe, and a principal free apologist for the anti-democratic, fascist, and sexual predator Donald fucking Trump, who remains a very real threat to our democracy even today. Rick Santorum lost his job at CNN like he lost those two presidential campaigns and his Senate seat and his name. But just like we haven't heard the last of Donald Trump, we haven't heard the last of Rick Santorum either. But at least when we hear Rick Santorum's name, we can have a laugh. Thanks to my readers, gay and straight, who canceled his ass first. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's. And on the Magnum, Matt Baum, writer, podcaster, and pop culture critic, drops in to share some big breakthroughs in virtual reality sex and teledildonics. And you may be surprised, as I was, to learn who's behind these big breakthroughs. All that coming up on today's show. Dan, what is up? I'm calling with a quarantine success story. So this last week, I drove up to Oregon from California for a little climbing trip. I love me some climbing boys and they're like darling little vans. And real hot quick, I found a super cute climbing boy. And we just like spent the whole day climbing together. And like, you know, I could tell like he was into me. And it was just so fun climbing all day with him. 
And then at one point he just looks at me and he's like, can I keep flirting with you? Because I think you're so beautiful and smart and funny. And I just want to be talking to you and like telling you how gorgeous you are. And I was like, uh, yeah, you can. And then not long after that, we started smooching and yeah, then we went to like a waterfall and got, you know, half naked and splashed around and he like fingered me up against some rocks, which is like very hot and like a little public. But anyway, just had like so much fun with him. And then that night, like we made, uh, he made me dinner back at his camper and like just had so much fun hanging out. And we started to give each other like massages with CBD oil and Dude, get you a climber boy because their hands, oh my lord, they know how to find the spot, dude. Mm. So anyway, just like, yeah, swap massages. He felt amazing on me and I felt so good on him. And then we started to like hook up more intensely. And the best part is like, he was so into consent and I'm super into consent. Like I'm extremely communicative and we'll just break it down at the very beginning. Like here are my boundaries. Here's where I want you to ask like blah, blah, blah. And he was so fucking into it and just really empowered me and like kept telling me how sexy it was. Like me setting my own boundaries and like, he just like loved how much I knew myself and what I wanted. And so that was just like so empowering. And I didn't want to have sex with him because I'm trying not to have sex with people that I'm only going to have sex with once. He was super, super cool with it, but he ate me out and I had the longest orgasm I have ever had. I was peaking for like 10 seconds and that has never happened to me. It was fucking crazy. And then like I grinded on him and he came so fucking fast and it was just so fun. And we were both like, holy fuck, you feel so good. It just made me feel so beautiful and intelligent and was such a fucking sweetheart. So anyways, I'm driving back home right now, just like replaying it in my mind. It means so grateful for my little weekend boyfriend, Cutie. Climbing boys, they come with their own harnesses and rigging. What is not to like? And can I keep flirting with you? That question he asked, can I keep flirting with you? What a great question. What a great way to use your words, especially a good way for a man to use his words. One quibble, one quibble with your awesome success story. You say you didn't want to have sex, but he ate you out. Getting eaten out is sex. You guys did have sex. You didn't have intercourse, but that is a minor quibble. I loved your success story. Thank you so much for calling in and sharing it. If anyone else out there has a great success story you want to share and you'd like us to potentially open next week's Savage Lovecast with your sex success story, give us a call, share your success story, and it might start the show next week. Hi, Dan. Long-time listener, first-time caller. I'm an old lesbian on the East Coast. And I wanted your help with understanding if the following equivalency is valid or not valid. A few years ago, my wife gave a history lecture on 50 years of LGBTQ rights since Stonewall. And afterwards, during a Q&A, a young man expressed dismay that she hadn't included anything about the BDSM community and their struggles against discrimination, their struggles for their rights. And she replied that that topic was beyond the scope of her lecture, and he continued to press her, and she said, you know, these are different issues. He disagreed. She closed the Q&A. I was uncomfortable. He was somewhat obnoxious in his presentation. And adding to the tension was the fact that this lecture was being given to a mixed audience, including a number of conservative people. 
But back to the issue at hand of distinctions, I personally see a distinction. On the one hand, um, there is societal recognition that same-sex couples should have the same legal and economic rights as opposite-sex couples. But on the other hand, when it comes to BDSM, my thinking is why would the specific sex acts that a person prefers enter into the same sphere of legal and economic rights. You know, of course, there's an intersection between the BDSM community and the queer community, but I'm trying to clarify the differences between these two groups as pertains to legal rights. So here's some of my confusion. Should I understand a BDSM orientation simply as a particular set of sexual fantasies and practices, kind of like a foot fetishist, per se? To me, this idea is kind of private information. I'd rather not know that my dentist is a foot fetishist, but perhaps somebody would also say they'd rather not know that their dentist was queer, the same or different. So if BDSM is a private individual matter, how does it then enter into the realm of legal and economic rights? If people choose to publicly express their BDSM orientation, and then they face discrimination as a result of being public about it. Is that actual oppression or is it just a consequence of somewhat poor judgment? There's a necessary public facing dimension to sexual orientation, who you are attracted to, who you want to have sex with, who you partner with, who you build a life with, who you marry and perhaps have children with that's public facing to hide that, to hide your sexual orientation, to cover up your relationship, to keep that quote-unquote private, to not, as the right-wing haters might say, shove that down everyone's throats, requires a gay or lesbian or bisexual person with a same-sex partner to go to such great lengths to maintain the fiction that they're actually a heterosexual person, to not do or say anything that might cause someone else to question the default setting, the heterosexual assumption that's made about all of us until we come out, it's almost impossible to do while also having a relationship, while also living honestly in the world. But that's about who you want to have sex with, who you want to be with, who you're romantically and intimately attracted to. But there's a, a, a real distinction, and I think it's a distinction with a difference between who you want to have sex with, who you want to partner with intimately, romantically, and how you want to have sex with the person or people that you partner with romantically and sexually. Sharing the who, you can't really avoid in any practical way sharing the who. But you don't have to share the how you have sex with the people that you're with. And, you know, you can run your friends and family and neighbors and coworkers on a need to know basis. Does your employer need to know you're in a same sex relationship? Well, yeah. If you want to have a, a public facing life with your intimate partner, as almost all people do, including heterosexuals who object to homosexuals shoving our sexual orientation down their throats, they shove theirs down ours and everyone else's without a moment's hesitation or thought because theirs is the default setting. Do you have to share how? With your employer, yeah, you have to, you know, if your partner's getting health insurance through your employer, they're going to know your partner's name. They're going to know your partner's sex or gender, and they'll be able to make certain assumptions about how you have sex if they want to think about it, but they're not required to think about it. You don't have to tell your employer that you have BDSM sex with your partner. 
in a perfect world, it shouldn't matter if your employer knew that. This is the only place where the guy who derailed your wife's Q&A session about LGBT rights may have an argument. There have been consequences. Are people into kink oppressed? Are people who are non-monogamous oppressed? Are people who are poly oppressed? Are people into hot wifing and cuckolding oppressed? To some extent, yes, because of the stigma and there are no legal protections. There's nothing that you can do. If your boss finds out that you're kinky or non-monogamous and fires you, you don't have redress. But how often does that happen? Rarely. If that happened to you, and maybe it happened to the person asking the questions at your wife's lecture, if that happened to you, it's extremely consequential, even if it's rare. Seems to me that we can make the distinction between sexual orientation, romantic orientation, and sexual practices, and between that which we can't avoid sharing publicly and the rest of it that we shouldn't have to avoid sharing publicly and we should be able to be open about, but friends, family, coworkers, you might want to run them on a need to know basis. There might be people in your life who love you and support you, but don't want to know that you're getting pegged on the regular or whatever it is that you're doing sexually with your partner that may be non-normative for your particular sexual orientation or gender identity. So no, people into BDSM aren't oppressed in the exact same way that gays and lesbians have been oppressed, not in a systemic way. There is that stigma, that kink phobia, and it can be consequential in the lives of individual people or couples or polycules who are into kink, who may have been outed to coworkers or friends or family or their employers about being into BDSM. People have lost jobs. People have become estranged from their families when their families found out about their interest in kink, whether they shared it because they meant to and wanted to, or whether that was shared with their families or employers against their will. But no, people who are into bondage or S&M haven't historically been denied the right to marry. You haven't had to go and file affidavits swearing that you weren't into anything but missionary position, vanilla intercourse in the dark. And yet I think gay, lesbian, and bi people should have some empathy for others who have experienced stigma around their sexual practices, if not their sexual orientations, because they're non-normative. I think all gays, lesbians, and bisexual people out there should be able to relate to that. We don't have to, however, draw false equivalency between those two things. Hi, Dan. This is a caller from Seattle in my mid-30s. Um, I'm calling in regards to my best friend of 10 years. She and I are both very much extroverts and very social and are just really, really great friends. But then the pandemic hit and we live in Seattle and I am immunocompromised and I shut it down. I went full social distancing, working from home, nothing really anyone except for my husband. But she did the opposite. She continued socializing, seeing friends, doing all the things, including getting married in July of last year with an in-person 50-guest wedding. I was supposed to be the maid of honor, but I ended up stepping back and not doing that and kind of shutting her out a little bit for self-preservation purposes. I am hoping or was hoping that we could pick up our friendship after this pandemic and was feeling very optimistic with vaccines now coming out. And she informed me that she had decided to not get vaccinated for her own reasons. She's that it's her body and her choice. 
She's really not giving me any other reasons besides that. And I am so heartbroken. I am so sad and mad. And my husband says that I should just wait it out and wait till this all blown over. But that could be years. And I don't want to lose her as a friend. But she's also being an asshole. So I'm not sure what I should do. She's very special. And I don't know if I want to lose her. But I also don't know if her behavior this last year has disqualified her as as being someone I want in my life. I think your friend has behaved recklessly and irresponsibly throughout the pandemic and her refusal to get the vaccine for such a facile reason is more evidence of her recklessness and this irresponsible streak in her character. And I think you have to ask yourself if you want to keep this person in your life or have this reckless, irresponsible person re-enter your life at some point. My answer to that question would be no. I like to have people around me, romantic partners and friends who display good judgment and aren't reckless and irresponsible. And the pandemic outed a lot of people as reckless and irresponsible. I guess it's possible that your friend's recklessness and irresponsibility may be COVID-19 pandemic specific and it's not going to slosh over into all sorts of other aspects of her life. Or it could be that your friend is headed in a direction in her life of increasing recklessness and irresponsibility, perhaps susceptibility to conspiracy theories. You don't say why she went ahead and had that wedding at the height of the pandemic. You don't say why she wasn't taking precautions uh, beyond my body, my choice. You don't go into why, and maybe she hasn't gone into why with you, why she's not taking the vaccine. You might want to get her on the phone. I assume you guys have sustained your relationship through email, phone calls, video chats. Get her on the phone and draw her out about that. And if she is one of those people out there, one of our fellow Americans who has succumbed to the lunacy and derangement that has just spread like a virus through our culture and through our society over the last four years since Donald Trump was elected, you may be facing a tough choice. The person you want in your life going forward may not exist anymore. The person you want in your life, you want back in your life is your friend that you knew before the pandemic, before she outed herself as reckless and irresponsible or before the pandemic broke her. And perhaps the Trump lunacy of the last four years broke her as it has broken so many other people. Time will tell whether this is pandemic-specific craziness on her part, or if your friend is going off the deep end or has gone off the deep end. If it's pandemic specific, maybe after another year or two, after if, please God, enough people get vaccinated, we can achieve herd immunity and it won't matter so much whether your individual friend, one of your friends didn't get vaccinated for whatever reason, maybe she can reenter your life, but perhaps not. Hi, Dan. I am a 25-year-old woman living in the Northeast. So basically, I just got out of a long-term relationship that I started before the pandemic and kind of just stayed in because I didn't, you know, I was going to be alone otherwise. And it was a bad relationship, just very emotionally abusive, manipulative, et cetera, et cetera, whatever. I'm in therapy. I've started seeing someone new. They really like me. After like the second or third date, they were like, I want you to be my girlfriend. I've been pretty clear from the beginning of like, 
I'm, I'm moving in, in four months and across the country and it's not what I'm looking for. They seem okay with it, but they definitely like reach out to me a lot more than I reach out to them, kind of jump at the chance to see me and will say things that are very conveying that they very, very much like me and would like something more serious. What I'm running into right now is that I feel like I'm being upfront and I'm trying not to say things I don't mean or come off as if I want something more serious. But I also, sometimes I guess I feel kind of bad. And I wonder, like, am I using this person who seems to really like me? And the sex is like, whatever. It's not like we're having a lot of sex or anything. Just like casual dates here and there. So I don't think I'm like doing any kind of irreparable harm. And I don't think I'm like using them for their body or anything. But I guess I just don't know, like, at what point are you taking advantage of someone who who likes you so much more than you like them? Is it just like, well, that's their decision. They know where I stand. You were clear with him about your intentions and about the fact that you're moving away in four months and about the fact that you're not seeking anything serious. If he wants to keep seeing you under those terms and conditions with his expectations in check, that it's very likely that this relationship isn't going to go anywhere and that there is a clear and imminent expiration date, then he can keep seeing you. Sometimes people gamble. They catch feelings for someone who clearly doesn't have feelings for them and they keep investing in that relationship in hopes that that person will come around. And that sometimes happens. There are lots of cases out there. There are lots of couples that I know, lots of couples that you probably know, where both people didn't feel as strongly about each other at the same time where one person might have caught feelings first, one person might have tripped up and said, I love you first and spooked the other person. But eventually they got onto the same page and a person can make that kind of gamble and you can allow someone to make that kind of gamble, to make that kind of bet on their relationship with you, even if you're not feeling it. Who knows? In three months, you may be so into him, maybe you'll catch a groove sexually or emotionally and it'll just take off and in three months you'll be revisiting your decision to hold this guy at arm's length or to even move away or you may invite him to move away with you or as is, of course, far more likely, you may end the relationship and go on your way with a very clear conscience. You ask what we owe the people that we're seeing casually and we owe them honesty and directness and you have been honest and direct. We also have a responsibility not to leverage someone's stronger feelings for us against them, not to use or manipulate them. You can be honest and direct and then use someone and manipulate them, knowing that they're making that kind of bet on you, betting that you'll catch feelings for them too in time. It is more common, however, for people to manipulate or leverage or use somebody's stronger feelings for them when they're not honest or direct, when they're ambiguous or they're actively misleading the person who they know has stronger feelings for them. And they're allowing that person to assume they feel the same way or they are telling that person they feel the same way to continue to get the sex that they want or close to the body that they like or whatever else comes with the package that they're enjoying, even if they're not seriously considering being with this person long-term and they know this isn't going anywhere for them. That is shitty behavior. It does not sound like that is what you're doing. You are not manipulating him. You're not leveraging his feelings for you against him. You are continuing to see him after having been completely honest and completely direct with him about your intentions and about the likelihood or the unlikelihood that anything serious or long-term is going to come of this. 
You can let him make that bet that you may come around. You're under no pressure to come around. You are free to go. Even if you felt as strongly for him right now as he feels for you, you're still free to go in four months if you no longer feel as strongly or if just for whatever reason you want to end it and move on with your life. So clearly you're a thoughtful and considerate person and you are being thoughtful and considerate about this. One last thing I'll add though, if the intensity of his feelings get to be too much, if you really feel like he's shoving all, you know, to continue to torture the bet metaphor, he, that he's shoving all of his chips into the middle of the table and he's going to be devastated. And, you know, with each date, every time you see him, every time you have sex with him, his feelings for you grow exponentially. You can call it early. You can cut him off early because that itself could be a passive kind of cruelty. If you perceive that his feelings for you are getting stronger and stronger and stronger, even as yours for him continue to flatline every time you get together, stop getting together with him. But if he's holding his expectations in check and being careful about his own feelings and you're being honest and direct, you can keep seeing him again with a clear conscience. Hi, Dan. Can you weigh in on this uh, whole neo-pronouns phenomenon? For instance, I would invite you to go on Twitter. I'm sure you're familiar with it, but even so, I would invite you to go on Twitter. Uh, there's an account called NeoPRNPOSBot. So it stands for Neo Pronouns Positivity Bot. And just look at some of the, the pronouns that are being generated. I mean, you have Doe, Dog, Dogwood Self, Car, Cardi, Cardinal Self. I mean... Come on, right? At a, at a certain point, come on. So you, you just tell me, am I, am I being narrow-minded and just finding this absolutely ridiculous? Or is this, is this just something that is, uh, I'm just uh, <laughs> reactionary <laughs> or something? I mean, if steg, stego, steg self, as like a stegosaurus. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that people mocked people for you know oh you know you identify as trans why don't you identify as a helicopter right and that's obviously a, meant to be a derisive joke but now it's like it seems like some of these criticisms are being pushed by at least certain groups to be more mainstream so please weigh in on this neo-pronoun situation must i must i weigh in on neo-pronouns I guess I must. You're not the only person who's asked and you're probably not the only person who's asked. This has come up in a few calls lately because the New York Times last month did a very respectful but appropriately skeptical piece about the whole neo-pronoun thing. Uh, first, quickly, let's define pronoun. The dictionary I have open in front of me says a pronoun is a word that is used instead of a noun or noun phrase. You know, she instead of Mary, they instead of the San Francisco 49ers. Ezra Marcus wrote the piece for the New York Times on April 8th. A Guide to Neopronouns, it's called, and he opens it by defining neopronoun. Quote, a neopronoun can be a word created to serve as a pronoun without expressing gender like Z and Zer. A neopronoun can also be a so-called noun self-pronoun, in which a pre-existing word is drafted into use as a pronoun. Noun self-pronouns can refer to animals, so your pronouns can be bun, bun self, I guess if you're bunny identified, and kitten, kitten self Others refer to fantasy characters, vamp, vamp self, prince, princess, princess self. Okay, zooming out for a second, uh, it's long seemed to me, I've argued on the show, that we need and maybe perhaps we'll eventually settle on one or maybe two gender-neutral pronouns. I 
nominate they, them, or zizer if we want to avoid the confusion around whether it's plural. Yes, there are a lot of examples out there of people, including William fucking Shakespeare, using the singular they. It's perfectly legitimate. And if you've ever told someone to go to a doctor and ask them about that mole, congrats, you have used the singular they. And I actually think that some people like they, them for the whole plural singular confusion. They like the I contain multitudesness of they, them. And the confusion, the burden on the rest of us who don't use they, them, how much of a burden is it really? How confusing is it really? People are like, wait, they are coming to dinner. How many extra plates should I set for them? It's not actually that annoying or that confusing in context. We typically know when someone is talking about one person. And this stuff doesn't come up that often anyway. Very few people use they, them. Even fewer use zer, and fewer still by far are out there using these neo-pronouns like bun-self for the bunny-identified. Marcus in his piece cites a study done by the Trevor Project that found that just 4% of LGBTQ youth surveyed have ever used neo-pronouns. So we are talking about a tiny percentage neo-pronoun users of a tiny percentage LGBTQ youth of a tiny percentage queer people of the population. And this shit is mostly happening online. And some of it has to be, and Marcus in his piece argues that some of it is just taking the piss, trolling people. It's likely impossible to distinguish, Marcus writes, between what's playful, trolling, and what's deeply meaningful. But many neo-pronoun users are dead serious and are also part of online communities that are quick to react swiftly to offenses. They are deeply versed in the style and mores of contemporary identity politics and conversations that means that a significant chunk, if not the majority of the people out there using neo-pronouns are very good at being angry on the internet and the opportunity to be angry on the internet. Well, that might not be the whole point, but it may be a big part of the point or the attraction to using neo-pronouns in the first place. So, but I'm basically saying again for some caller, it's just trolling. And caller, you took the bait. You got trolled. You called into my show with this question. And by playing your call, maybe I've been trolled. And your call and the fact that I played it and the fact that I didn't respond by just dismissing you as a bigot will get me called a bigot. But yeah, in the answer to your question, the whole thing does also strike me as ridiculous. And I think for some, that is the point also strikes me as trivial and inconsequential. Obviously not beneath comment, since I've been commenting on it for a while now, but still. And caller, I gotta say, there are no groups out there pushing this. There's no conspiracy, just like there are no organized online groups or offline groups out there pushing straight boys to kiss each other in their TikTok videos. There is no organized campaign to push neo-pronouns on an unsuspecting public. It's just a thing a mostly online thing happening here and there on the internet, just like straight boys aren't going to go extinct because of TikTok videos. We aren't all going to be forced to start using neo pronouns in five years because there's a Twitter account you found with less than a thousand followers. So no need for a moral panic, no need to waste your beautiful mind on this or mine. One thing though, uh, in Marcus's piece, I want to push back against is the line of defense most often taken by neo-pronoun fans when people roll their eyes at them. They accuse their detractors, they accuse people who dismiss neo-pronouns as silly or trivial or ridiculous of being transphobic. I'm sorry, considering yourself a vampire or a princess 
doesn't make you trans. A person can't transition to vampire or bunny. Princess, sure, every once in a while, Kate Middleton, Meghan Markle, they transition to princesses. But that's it. A trans person, an actual trans person, of course, can use neo-pronouns, but identifying as a kitten itself does not make you trans. And it trivializes what actual trans people go through to be themselves to equate the two. A news story that begins, I fucked a guy who is in Norway, says Changa, a giant talking dog who towers over me easily twice my size. I was a husky and he was a wolf and a power bottom is a piece is a news story that catches my eye. The author of that piece, Matt Baum, is a Seattle writer, podcaster, and pop culture critic, and a colleague of mine at The Stranger, Seattle's only whatever it is now. Not a newspaper anymore, but not not a newspaper either. Matt, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me here. Thanks for, for coming on my podcast. I've been on yours, and I really enjoyed it. It's really fun, finally, to have you on mine. Yay. Well, I, I, I enjoy the swapping. <laughs> so uh, what's going on here? Uh, how are guys in California hooking up with guys in Norway fucking like animals and fucking as animals? How'd that happen? It's it's this amazing phenomenon. I'm so excited to to have stumbled upon it and, and to have learned more about it. Basically, the short version is there's been a huge acceleration in virtual reality technology this year, thanks in large part to the furry fandom. Uh, they have flocked to VR during quarantine. There are a lot of folks there already, but uh, it, it really was popularized by folks being kind of stir-crazy at home. And uh, a lot of folks in the fandom are very tech-savvy and started hacking and inventing and experimenting with new ways to use virtual reality for for sex uh, with actual physical devices that uh, can be attached to or placed against your body. Uh, so there's this incredible um, melding of imagination, like an imaginary virtual world uh, playing out in front of your eyes or on a computer screen. You don't have to have a headset. Uh, and also like physical, like actual tactile sensations on your body. Um, and I, I'm just delighted by it because the, the, the fandom has taken such an active role in, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're really on the cutting edge here. It's always the kinky people, the queers and the sex workers that drive technological innovation, it seems. Uh, but, but backing up for a second, VR, uh, virtual reality, porn, that's not a new thing. Teledildonics, they've been around almost as long as the internet's been around, sort of rudimentary, uh, rough, sort of first-gen teledildonics came along 15, 20 years ago. What's new about this? What's the innovation that the furry community has driven here? Well, really, what's going on here at, at like its most basic level is it's all cameras and screens, but They've gotten smaller and smarter. And also the the level of skill of the uh, mostly uh, hobbyists – some people are, are really doing this professionally as a, as a career. But uh, the, the the level of uh, ability that people uh, have brought to this is, is really accelerated. Uh, one person described it to me as being a lot like the early internet. And it, it, it reminds me of that in a lot of ways before it was sort of uh, taken over and, and, and bought by Facebook and, and Twitter and all those. Remember in the like the 90s when you could just – log on and, and find all kinds of like strange, um, very personal idiosyncratic projects. Uh, that's what you're finding in VR right now. So, so basically what you experience when you get into this scene, uh, and like I said, you can do this on a computer screen. You don't need a VR headset. It'll be more fun if you have a VR headset. But uh, my first time getting into this, this whole world and experimenting, I was just sitting at my computer, mouse and keyboard and monitors and, and playing around. And so what's that like? Like it's a, a Sims fairy world where you get to go online and, and move around and 
hook up with other people who are in Sims Furryland? What what is the experience of that world like? Yeah, I'd say that it's it's not dissimilar. It feels like a video game. So if you have any familiarity with have playing a playing a first person video game um you're just looking at the screen you're using your mouse and keyboard like literally you can use the arrow keys or if you're a fancy gamer you could use the the WASD keys on your on your uh, keyboard to just walk around move around it feels like any other pretty simple rudimentary looking game um and you can explore environments like gosh um a lot of these are very like um made by the people who are, who are playing the game so like the sims you you kind of build the world that you want. So it might be something really simple like someone's apartment, or it might be something more imaginative like a fantasy forest, or you might be looking at a city with like futuristic cars. So the primary platform that people are using is something called VRChat, uh, which allows you to build your own world. So really, it's whatever people want to see, they create. And then the, the wild part is when you get into a world that has mirrors, and suddenly you turn a corner and you see your reflection. Um, and for me, early on, um, they present you with this sort of menu of avatars that you can you can inhabit. And so you'll see yourself as like a cartoon dog or, um, you know, there's a lot of like IP in, in this world. So you might be SpongeBob SquarePants or uh, you might be like a tall mannequin or a beautiful woman. There's a lot of anime characters. Wait, um, is that, wait, is that IP or is that a copyright violation if you get to be SpongeBob SquarePants in a world where you can fuck? Well... Well, dog, other people's dog <laughs> avatars. Uh, what's going on there? Yeah, so uh, you, there's uh, some some um, owners of property have put their stuff into the games, uh, in, into into this world for you to use. Uh, other people, uh, hobbyists, have created their own fan versions of things, and I, I think this is a murky world that um, eventually the the lawyers will discover. But. A lot of people aren't selling stuff, so it's not quite so like uh, you know I'm selling somebody else's thing. What are the advances in teledildonics? What are these uh, folks who are driving this technology incorporating now in the teledildonic space that wasn't around 15 years ago when I first heard about it and looked into it? Oh, it's so exciting. So there's one company that's really an innovator here called Lovins that has um, some toys that are really smart and compact. Um, basically, they have sensors in them and motors that you can attach as a masturbator on your dick. You can use it as a butt plug. You can use it as, um, uh, you know, to, to penetrate whatever uh, orifice you like. Uh, and they talk to each other wirelessly. They can talk to phones. They can talk to each other remotely across the world. And excitingly, Lovins has have, have made basically the the technological guts of their stuff available to developers so with a little bit of technical expertise furries have been able to hack together ways of controlling the devices wirelessly from within vr so you can walk up to somebody and they could be thousands of miles away and if you have some if you have worked out some arrangements and some agreements here you can touch you can reach out in virtual space and touch their avatar and they will physically feel it in their body or on their body or around their body, uh, wherever they are in the world, uh, because folks have figured out the kind of the technological guts and wiring and, and code uh, to make basically tactile sensations happen in real life when you trigger them in virtual reality. Uh, and it's just it's an it's an amazing uh, it's an amazing phenomenon that 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 you can do this. That's come a long way from just somebody can put a butt plug in and you can press the space bar on your computer and it'll pulse. That's yeah yeah miles away from that you describe the husky in your lead and the wolf power bottom they fucked in virtual mm -hmm. reality he could feel his dick going in and out and 
you know, because he had his dick uh, in a VR device and it was communicating with the VR device butt plug that the wolf on the other side of the world had in his butt and they were fucking. They could, they had the physical sensations of fucking in this virtual space, each other from the other side of the world. Yeah, and I got to emphasize, this is this is so new. This has been going on for a couple of months that the fandom, like a, a group within the fandom, uh, has been has been doing this. Uh, one of them said, "It's been amazing watching us all learn game development tools so we can fuck." <laughs> <laughs> it's so it's so cool that they're like discovering this and then using their own tools that they invented uh, in, in real time. So we're going to one day look back and think we got gay marriage out of the AIDS crisis, basically. The push for gay marriage grew out of that. We're going to get teledildonics, new level, out of the COVID-19 pandemic. Is that too dark? Is it too soon to make that kind of observation? Because it really was people having a lot of time at home and feeling isolated. The people that you interview were at home and feeling isolated and poured their time and effort and energy into this. It is a it has been a fascinating renaissance to see. And I think, you know, the, the, the future like there's there's so much more to do um in terms of like wearable vests and um jewelry and stuff like that. There's there's a lot more technology just around the corner. So it's it's a great time to to dive in because it's all very young and there is just the it feels like the internet in nineteen ninety two where there's a lot of directions it can go in and it's very exciting. So the world that you describe, you know, in the piece that people can find at the stranger, what was the title of that piece for people who want to look it up real quick? The title is furries are hacking VR sex. Okay. So furries are driving this. You keep calling it furry fandom. And I have a question to zoom out just for a second about furries. When you suggest mm-hmm. like say on a sex advice podcast that there's something sexual about furries uh, when you imply that this is a fetish community, you get a lot of angry pushback. Why is that? Sex phobia, kink phobia, PTSD from the earliest representations of the furry community in mainstream media, which focused almost exclusively on the kind of what the fuck, what fresh kink is this perviness of it all? Mm-hmm. Because your piece is all about how furry fandom and the desire of uh, people with fursonas and people into the furry scene, their desire to hook up with each other uh, and have sex as their personas is driving this innovation. And to me, that says, well, there's something inherently sexual about, at least for many people, the interest in furrydom. But when you say that, you get kind of, for lack of a better term, dogpiled on the internet. No. What's going on there? Yeah. Well, I think there's there's kind of a confluence of things. Um, to say that the furry fandom is a fetish community is like saying that humans are a fetish community. Furries are people like anyone else, and they have sex. Uh, many of them, not all of them, but they have sex like many people. And so, you know, like any community, there are people who are interested in sex and dating and romance and relationships. Um, but you're right that early interest in this community, early mainstream interest, tended to be quite lurid and mm-hmm. uh, appearances on television and media uh, tended to focus exclusively on the sex stuff. So I think furries are justifiably a little wary of being characterized in this way. uh, You know, as soon as someone mentions that furries have sex lives, I I think there's sort of a, you know, a lot of red flags and red alerts go off of like, oh, no, is this going to be another voyeuristic, uh, you know, something that portrays us all as ferverts? When in fact, a lot of my time, I would say 
It's about 50-50. The time that I've spent in VR with with furries has been in a sexual context or at least a, um, you know, either romantic or uh, erotic context. Uh, But also there are just like folks having a good time, having a blast, hanging out, just talking about whatever. Can't you say the same thing about the leather community? Yeah, the people in the leather community have lives, they have interests. You know, you spend a lot of time at leather fetish events, leather fetish events, hanging out, talking, meeting with friends, people you don't have sexual relationships with, and maybe 50% of your Mm -hmm. time fucking around with the people you do. So the distinction you're drawing is kind of lost on me a little bit. Uh, well, yeah, I, you know, I think that's a great comparison because I, thinking back to like the time that I've spent at like IML in Chicago, um, a lot of that time was hanging out with people talking about Star Trek. <laughs> there was not a lot of like <laughs> sex going on. And yeah, I, I think it's honestly, it's very similar. Um, you know, I've spent a lot of time just like having movie nights with furries in VR, just, you know, watching like, I don't know, you know, probably Zootopia. And then, you know, so some people like, this is just not what they're, some furries, this is not what they're using VR for at all. Mm -hmm. Others are like, hey, this is hot to me. I want to, I discovered a new way to have fun with my body and with sex. Let's see where this goes. But it's not Um, just that. It's not just sex. It's not, no, no, not at all. Not at all. Um, I think that's true of every fetish community. Like people bring their whole lives along when they are, not just fetishists or getting their kink on, but becoming a part of a, a you know a, a community that may have formed around a kink or a sexual interest. But it's not a sexual interest for all, or not a sexual interest at all times for all. I will say, yeah, that's exactly it. Um, somebody created a um, this this beautiful recreation, very um, authentic recreation of like a Tokyo um, train station, and you know, with some furry friends, just like hung out there exploring this train station, and that was cool. Not sexual at all, at least to me. For many people, there's probably a lot of sexual iconography going on there. But <laughs> you know, was there that a was, tunnel? That was, a hang- was there a train going out of a tunnel and into a tunnel? I don't think you have to reach very far to find the sexual metaphors to the train station. But for this for this particular hangout, like you really, you, you know, like any other hangout, you get the vibe from the people you're with if they want it to be a sexy time. You know, if people are just like dressed in casual streetwear, they're probably just going to have a hangout. If somebody's dressed in like a harness with a muzzle, you know, like the, 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 the muzzle like with a bit in it that you have in your mouth, then you kind of pick up the vibe like, okay, this is going to be a sex time. And if if one is what you want and the other isn't, then you can like drop out and jump into another world. So how do people who may be interested in visiting this online community find their way there? And how can people who may want to check it out but aren't furries themselves, how can they visit it while being respectful of that space? That's a great question. Um, so it's really easy to get into. The main platform that people are using is called VRChat. It is free uh, and it works on uh, – PC and I'm pretty sure on Mac too. You don't need the headset. Although I will say like I did a few times and I got the, I was like, this is amazing. And I got the headset. It's pretty cheap. It's like $300. So, you know, it's, it's not a huge lift anyway. Uh, so download VR chat and, you know, do a, like a quick search. If you want to like find folks who are doing stuff in this space, like an easy Google search for like furry virtual reality. Uh, and you'll find folks who are active here and, you know, you could just reach out and be like, Hey, I'm interested. Uh, and you can gauge, you know, respectfully, is this person involved in VR chat? 
uh, or VR in a sexual context, or are they just like friendly hanging out and having a, having a good time goofing off? Uh, and, you know, just you know, approach them in the, the context that they're putting out into the world, uh, approach them in, in the same with the same sort of vibe. Generally, the fandom is very eager to welcome new folks in and are excited to make new friends. This is something that I really like about the fandom is they're everybody's generally pretty friendly and pretty welcoming and accommodating. If you're cool, they're cool. But people in kink communities can tell or fetish communities or Birdom, which is not all fetish, not all kink, they can tell the difference between somebody who's coming to ogle, gape, and mock, and someone who just may want to visit because they're curious. So mm-hmm. be a curious visitor, not an asshole, basically. Just don't be an asshole, which is really a rule that should apply everywhere, not just in these spaces, online spaces, offline spaces, too. Relationships, everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, think of yourself as a guest in someone's place and be like, you know, hey, show me the cool stuff. What else is there to see? Be interested and curious and let them set the pace and and you're good to go. And you can be any sort of animal that you want. You know, after hanging out in sort of a default body, I went and paid like, I was like 40 bucks or something for a, um, like a rabbit avatar that I could customize. And now I've got my own little customized rabbit that I, I hang out as, and I could be a small rabbit. I could be a giant rabbit that's taller than everybody else. This is part of the fun is you can be whatever you want, build whatever you want, go wherever you want. And if you want to have sex, you can start doing that too. Matt Baum, Seattle writer, podcaster, and pop culture critic. Where can people find you online, Matt? Well, uh, you can find me in VR chat. I'm Bunny Matt there. Uh, you can also check out my podcast, The Sewers of Paris, where I talk to queer people about entertainment that's changed their life. Uh, and I've got a YouTube channel uh, where I talk about uh, queer episodes of television and milestones, you know, like the gay episode of The Nanny that changed the way that TV talked about uh, homosexuality. So I have a fun YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Matt Baum, where I talk about queer TV. And it's all at mattbaum.com. I've got a newsletter there where I send out little alerts about what I'm working on and what we weird thing i've stumbled upon next you do great work and uh, i'm a big fan of your podcast and i'm a big fan of your youtube channel uh, unpacking these queer episodes of some people's classic television me the television i grew up with because i am old thank you so much for jumping on the phone (laughs) absolutely thanks so much for having me my boyfriend was in an unfulfilling marriage for about 30 years he told me that he had not had penis and vagina sex for at least the last 10 of those years We've tried having sex a few times, but he loses his erection when we try penis and vagina. I've heard you talk about death grip, and I would like to hear what it is that he and I can do to overcome it. You sound a little peeved. You sound a little annoyed. I don't want to tone police you, but I hope you aren't using that tone. I'm going to police your tone just a little bit. I hope you're not using that peeved, annoyed, frustrated tone when you talk about this with your boyfriend. Because it could be death grip syndrome, it could be performance anxiety, and that tone in your voice isn't going to do anything to help him with his performance anxiety. Now, for it to be death grip syndrome, he would have had to have been masturbating for a very long time in a very particular way that provided his dick with a particular kind of stimulation that another human being's vaginal canal, in this instance, couldn't possibly provide his penis. That's possible. You say that he was in an unfulfilling marriage for 30 years, your boyfriend was, and that they weren't having any sex for the last 10 years. Possible that your boyfriend in the last 10 years carved a very deep groove into his dick. However, most people with what I call colloquially death grip syndrome, which is not a real thing, you won't find it in the DSM, but what I call death grip syndrome, most people develop that after masturbating in a particular way over and over and over again during their adolescence and into their young adulthood and then often into late adulthood. 
Perhaps that's your boyfriend's problem. If, however, your boyfriend was capable of having PIV sex with his former spouse when they were having sex and he functioned, my money is on performance anxiety. The stakes are suddenly so high. And if you are talking with him about his inability to sustain that erection, as they say in the ED ads, with the same kind of terse, frustrated, truncated tone that you used when you talked with me about it. And I don't know if you are. You were talking with me, not talking with him. I hope you're more sensitive about it when you talk with him. That's not going to do anything to alleviate his performance anxiety. Here's what you can do to alleviate his performance anxiety. Focus on what works. You say that when you try to have PIV sex, he goes limp. Okay, well, don't have PIV sex for a while. Explicitly take PIV off the menu so he doesn't feel anxious going into a sex session with you, at least for the next, I don't know, dozen or so. Doesn't feel anxious about whether he's going to be able to get and stay hard and do the other things that I assume are working. I assume other things are working because you specifically said PIV ain't working. Well, if oral's working, if mutual masturbation is working, if dry humping or wet humping or vertage is working, do those things and make it explicit before you go into a sex session for the next dozen times that that's all you're going to do. Those are your expectations. Help him build up confidence in his dick because it can work. It does work for those other things. You should also say when you have these conversations about the next dozen sex sessions that aren't going to require where you're not going to expect PIV – that if he is, if you're sufficiently aroused, if there's enough foreplay, this has to be about your pleasure too. If he is inspired to go for it, even if for just a minute with no expectation that he's going to be able to finish in you, he can and he should. Again, with the understanding that at that point where he might go for it, you are sufficiently aroused and into it also yourself. The other factor could just be age. You say he was in an unsatisfactory marriage for 30 years. If he didn't get married at age 15, if he got married when people typically get married or were getting married 30 years ago, that means he was 25, 30 years old. So he's in his late 50s now or early 60s. Yeah, that's when a lot of men begin to experience erectile dysfunction, which then can contribute to you know, a shame spiral, could create a negative feedback loop, terrible self-fulfilling prophecies about the inability to get hard and stay hard. There are medications and they work. He should get some. He might also want to get a cock ring. But the thing that you can control, you can't force him to get the meds. Hopefully he will get the meds. The thing you can control to some extent is his anxiety around his performance. You can reassure him that if you both get together and you get intimate and you both get off and you get off perhaps more than once, that it was successful sex, even if there was no PIV or no sustained PIV and oral sex and mutual masturbation and wet humping and dry humping and rolling around and just being intimate and being connected and being together can be and is for you. Maybe you have to lie to say this. Maybe this isn't good sex for you, but it might help you get to the good sex that you want to have. If you can tell this to him, if you can fake it till he can make it, you tell him that this is good and satisfactory sex for you too. And then have the sex that he can have, have the sex that he's good at and capable of having right now to rebuild his confidence after this unhappy 30-year marriage and the 10-year dry spell that he went through. Good luck. Hi, Dan. I'm a 30-year-old trans man who's been having the best four years of my life, minus COVID and all the political bullshit, of course. I came out as a poly queer trans guy 
I started taking testosterone and was totally accepted by my friends and family. However, in the process of really finding myself, I realized I lost my mojo. What I mean is that I haven't had a romantic attraction to anyone, and my sex drive has basically fucked off entirely. I started to question if I've ever even felt those things at all. In the past, I've found people attractive but would treat relationships as a kind of validation vending machine where I would be a total people pleaser in order to get love and acceptance. But now that I can love and accept myself, I just don't feel crushes. If someone were to ask me what romantic feelings are, I draw a total blank. I used to think romance was sex plus friendship until I was told no, romance is a very different feeling from friendship. I've never had much of a sex drive either. Like the first time I tried masturbation, I was basically 18 and was worried that if I didn't, I wouldn't fit in with the other college kids. But don't get me wrong, I'm definitely not a prude. I'm a total nerd about sex and theory. I write reviews and articles about sex toys for trans people, so my closet is bursting with dicks, dildos, and vibes. I do find kink much more interesting to me with its clear rules and intentions, though. And when I do care about someone, I'll enjoy sex as a way to kind of connect with that person and make them happy, even though I can count on two hands the amount of times I've actually gotten off with other people. I've explained this to some friends, and some people have said they think that I'm just hella repressed, while others have suggested that I'm some flavor of aromantic asexual. It's a bit melodramatic, but I kind of worry I'm cursed to be a boring man-child while the rest of my friends fuck each other in those celebratory post-COVID orgies we're all planning. My question for you is, how can I tell if it's because I'm repressing my feelings or if I'm just a completely different orientation? Is it unethical for me to keep trying to date people who develop feelings for me? if I'm unsure if I can reciprocate those feelings in return. It's not unethical for you as an aromantic and possibly asexual trans guy to date people. It's unethical to allow people, however, to make reasonable assumptions, assumptions about you that you know to be false. If I asked a woman out on a date, if I were dating a woman, she would make the reasonable assumption that I was attracted to women, that I was romantically and sexually attracted to women. And if there was something else I wanted from her and that's why I was dating her, something other than what she thought was on offer or she thought was possible because she made the perfectly reasonable assumption that I, as a man asking her out, was telegraphing a, at least an openness to connecting with her sexually in some romantic spark or, of attraction, that would be wrong of me. So I don't think it's unethical for you to date people so long as the people you date Know who you are so long as you're not allowing them to make assumptions about you, about what you're sexually interested in or capable of, uh, or about romance and its place in your life or your experience, this absence of romantic attraction, a romantic pull. Now, aromantic people sometimes do have long-term committed relationships that are very intimate and there is a desire for that kind of connection, for that kind of partnership, but they may not experience that in the same way that romantic people experience romantic attraction. Romantic attraction can be fleeting. So in some ways, perhaps aromantics who establish those long-term intimate partnerships, those partnerships may wind up, I'd be up to seeing some studies of this, those partnerships may wind up being more stable 
than the partnerships that those of us who experience romantic attraction forge. Uh, those connections we make, those proposals we make, the marriages we enter into when those romantic feelings are at their height. And then we spend the rest of our lives, romantics who make those kind of commitments at the height of romantic attraction, trying to live up to that or re-experience it or, or bring that back to our relationships. So yeah, I think perhaps a partnership uh, entered into an intimate relationship, a long-term committed relationship entered into by a couple of aromantics or an aromantic and a romantic person on some level might be more stable. You know, I don't want to declare you asexual, though. And asexuality is real, 1% of the population, perfectly possible that you are an asexual trans man. Uh, that would be, I think, a little atypical because often when you read about the experiences of trans men, when they t start taking tea, when they transition, their libidos tend to spike, trans men's libidos. Trans men often say that when they started on tea, they were suddenly horny, more often and horny in ways that they weren't before T. So your sexuality, your horniness, not being sent through the roof when you started taking T, I think is a, perhaps evidence that you may be part of the 1%. The thing I want to tease out, though, is your interest in uh, the appeal that kink may hold for you. It doesn't sound like you've explored that yet. I would encourage you to explore that, not to cure yourself of asexuality if indeed you are asexual, but that's intriguing. There are some people who identified as aromantic, identified as asexual, and had some sort of background noise interest in kink that when out of curiosity they began to explore, it opened up a world for them of sexual connection, of a different kind of romantic connection. You know, we are taught that kink isn't about relationships, that kink is perversion. It's these weird and crazy things that people do that aren't about love and connection and intimacy. But for someone who is wired kinky, and some people know what their kinks are early. Some people can articulate them. Some people arrive at their first partnered sex having masturbated about their kinks for five years, 10 years, 20 years. But some people tiptoe into kink and it awakens desires, it awakens attractions that were so, I don't want to use the word repressed because that word gets thrown at a lot of asexual people, but maybe so buried under just layers and layers and layers of kink shame that they weren't able to tap into them or identify them until they began to explore whatever the kink was that kind of was shimmering off there in the distance. It had some appeal and they assumed it wasn't for them because they're not really interested in sex and sex is about kink and sex isn't about relationships. And who knows? You've got a closet full of sex toys and vibrators and dicks. Whatever the kinks are that you're curious about, I would encourage you to explore, not to cure yourself of being an aromantic. Aromantics aren't diseased or damaged or ill and not to cure yourself of being an asexual, but just to make sure that you are asexual, that you are aromantic, just to stress test that perhaps a little bit. And even if you still are asexual, aromantic after exploring your kinks, it will be another way that you can connect with people. It may be a way that you can connect with someone that you're dating who's interested in dating you and that you're honest with about being aromantic and asexual. It may be a way that you can connect with that person as you form that committed intimate relationship that you might want to have as other aromantic people want to have. And 
often do have. Hi, Dan. 24-year-old female from Canada. My partner and I are non-monogamous. We are fluid-bonded exclusively to each other and use condoms when having penetrative sex or when using toys on another outside partner. However, recently we had a discussion about the use of condoms during oral sex. We haven't been using them for oral with other partners of any gender, but when we visited a sex worker, she put a condom on my partner to perform oral sex on him. I prefer not to use them for oral, but I'm wondering how safe this behavior has been in protecting myself and my partner from contracting SDIs. Should we be using condoms during oral? Is it risky to go without? Chlamydia, syphilis, herpes, gonorrhea, HPV, HIV even, all can be transmitted during oral sex. Quick note, HIV much less likely to be transmitted during oral sex. Oral sex is much less risky where HIV is concerned than penetrative anal intercourse in particular and also vaginal intercourse, even oral sex with an infected partner. But it has happened. It can happen. You and your partner have to do a risk-benefit analysis. Are the risks of one or the other of you contracting orally a sexually transmitted infection, bringing him oral gonorrhea, oral syphilis, worth the benefits of not having to suck on a condom when you want to suck somebody else's dick? That's a decision that you have to make. And it entirely hinges on how much risk you and your primary partner, the person with whom you are fluid bonded, the person with whom you don't have to use condoms at all ever for anything, how much risk you guys are willing to tolerate. I will say at the height of the HIV AIDS crisis, the height of the HIV AIDS pandemic, very few, no gay men were using condoms for oral sex. And there was a lot of hand-wringing in the public health community about the likely coming wave of HIV infections among all these guys who are having oral sex without using condoms for oral, and it never came. So that was a whole generation of gay men deciding that the pleasures of oral sex without condoms were worth what they thought, at least initially at the beginning of the pandemic, was a high risk of HIV transmission and then began to realize was a very low risk. And then the science caught up with all those gay men who were not using condoms for oral and showed that, yeah, that wasn't an irrational decision. It was a guess at the time that most gay men were making the decision to not use condoms for oral, but it wasn't in the end an entirely irrational one. But HIV, HIV, you as an opposite sex couple in an open relationship are much likelier to wind up being exposed to. That doesn't mean you'll necessarily get infected. Exposure doesn't automatically lead to infection, but you know there has to be an exposure for there to be an infection. You're much likelier to encounter out there with your other partners and potentially bring home to your primary partner gonorrhea, syphilis, chlamydia, all of which currently can be treated. There's a kind of scary drug-resistant gonorrhea that's gaining a foothold, but all can be treated, all can be cured for the moment. And if you guys get regular STI screenings, I think the risks are low. I think you could keep doing what you're doing. But if you're risk-averse, if you can't tolerate any risk of exposure to STIs outside of your relationship from other partners, you could start using condoms with other partners for oral as well as vaginal and anal intercourse. Or if you really want to eliminate all risk, you can stop having other partners. Hi, Dan. 47-year-old queer artist and mom from Brooklyn here. I have a question. I was at the camera supply store last week and an attractive young female sales associate was helping me. She was very friendly in the barista bartender kind of a way. 
at a certain point, she says, follow me. And I'm following her. And she has the most splendiferous dairy air I've seen in recent memory. Without thinking, I say, you're fun to follow. And she gives me the half laugh. In that moment, I realize my comment could sound very harassing if my intention to pay an ego-boosting compliment wasn't understood. I have no interest in pursuing a sexual relationship with her. I would never hit on anybody at work or whose customer I was, especially because I think they work on commission. But how is she supposed to know that? As a queer person and as an artist, I see the beauty in all kinds of bodies, and I know so many folks aren't confident in their look. I'm all about sharing my appreciation whenever I can as part of my gratitude practice. Is there a way to make my intention to share a compliment clear? Or should I just shut up and not talk to people about their bodies? You hit on somebody at work. You made a pass at someone, sort of, kind of, but kind of made a pass at someone whose customer you were. You complimented this woman's ass and all the evidence we need that it was unwelcome and probably not the first time a customer has made a comment to her about her body or about her attractiveness, affirmed her beauty, was that half laugh when she turned around. That's the half laugh of the annoyed barista. You called it. You called it yourself. That's the half laugh of the annoyed barista. It's like, ah, it's my job to be nice and friendly. And you have taken that as license. Now, you say you're not making a pass at her. You're just trying to affirm her. Make sure that she knows that her body is beautiful. Not your job as a customer in a camera shop. Not your job as a customer in a coffee shop. Not your job when you're in a restaurant and a waiter is taking your order. It's just not your job. That's what friends and lovers are for. That's what spaces that we enter into where we kind of give everyone else in that space permission to pay us compliments, certain kinds of bars and clubs. We know what kind of bars and clubs those are. Please, people, use your words, not your hands. And certain kinds of online spaces that we enter, you know, hookup ads, dating apps, where we post photos of ourselves and we are inviting that kind of attention. No one is inviting that kind of attention at work. That said, there are certainly baristas and waiters, and I assume camera store clerks, who've hit on customers. If a barista is interested in you, let the barista lead. The barista will let you know. And it's not going to be ambiguous. It's not going to be a smile. It's not going to be a generally friendly demeanor. It's not going to be they remembered your order. That just means they're a good barista. That doesn't mean they want to suck your dick or clit. Let the barista lead or the camera store clerk lead. You did not do that here. She said, follow me. She was friendly as customer service people are ordered to be in the United States. She was friendly and you made a comment to her about her ass and she didn't like that. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to be the kind of person that you claim to be at the end of your call, the kind of thoughtful, considerate person who would never hit on somebody at work. I want you to be the kind of customer at the coffee shop or the camera shop or the restaurant or wherever who never causes a service employee ever again to look back over their shoulder and toss that half laugh, which means please stop back at you. 
All right, before we get to listener response calls, let's read some tweets. NIN Girl Jane tweets, episode 760, about the kid who asked for a sex toy, Dan. I would be very careful recommending that kid make their own sex toy. That could be quite dangerous. You mentioned a shoelace. Now I have visions of a hospital trip. All right, this is going to sound like, hey, we rode around without bike helmets when we were kids and we survived, or we bounced around the backseat of cars without seatbelts when we were kids and we survived. Obviously, kids who didn't have helmets on and died or flew through windshields, those kids aren't here today to say, hey, we did not survive. I get it. I get it. But when I think about all the things I used as sex toys when I was a kid and I survived, including shoelaces, I guess I trust that a teenage boy can tie a shoelace around his dick. We were talking about an improvised cock ring here and managed to untie it or cut it off before his dick turns green and falls off. And it's not like adult men haven't been rushed to emergency rooms to have actual cock rings cut off their actual dicks. But you're right, NIN Girl Jane, a person is a lot less likely to injure themselves with an actual sex toy than with an improvised sex toy. Andrew Bamer tweets, Bought a new car yesterday, hooked my phone up to the Bluetooth, and the Savage Lovecast started auto-playing sex advice from Dan Savage for the elderly salesman showing me how everything worked. Oops. Sorry about that. Andrew, but you're never too old to learn some new tricks, and it's possible that salesman already knows the tricks. He may have invented some of the tricks. Remember, we didn't invent sex, we inherited it. And finally, Michael Gerber tweets, This adorable woman on Dan Savage's Savage Lovecast just said, Not to be too graphic, but... On a podcast where the host had said earlier, Anything's a dildo if you're brave enough. I love people so much. I love people too, Michael. I especially love all the people out there who posted about the show to your social media accounts this week. We really appreciate it. And if you want me to read your tweet on next week's Lovecast, be sure to use the Savage Lovecast hashtag. And now, listener response calls. Hi, I'm calling regarding episode 760, where a caller asked about using a vibrator after having chlamydia and Dan recommended cleaning with soap and water or dishwasher. It's correct that we'll clean it, but that's different from having it being sanitized or sterilized. So as someone in the food pharma industries, I would recommend using a sanitizing agent or sterilizing via boiling would probably be the safest bet. For the mother in podcast 760, whose kid uh, wants her to buy them a cock ring, as an addendum to Dan's advice about establishing boundaries, I'd be very concerned that your kid is desperately trying to provoke some sort of extreme reaction from you by being so upfront about the masturbation and showing you like unasked for evidence of said masturbation. Like, I'm not saying you should have an extreme reaction. I'm not saying you should, you know, come down on them or shame them or anything, but I think as something to emphasize the importance of that talk about boundaries is you know, if your kid uh, thinks that things they have to act out to get to get attention, to get, you know, extreme sort of attention, they're going to wind up being a little exhibitionist. And that's something, you know, you might want to keep an eye on, you know, as they're as they're developing, you know, make sure they're not going to be flashing kids at school or anything like that. So, you know, you know, good luck and have that boundaries talk. Hi, I'm calling in response to the woman calling about divorcing her husband in the most recent episode and whether sexual incompatibility is grounds for divorce. She mentioned that her mother's Jewish. I don't know if she herself is Jewish or if she had a Jewish wedding, but in a traditional Jewish marriage 
contract of ketubah, a man is contractually obligated to provide his wife with sex. And according to Jewish law, if he doesn't provide her with sex, that is grounds for divorce. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for me or a comment about this week's show? There are two ways to get them to us. You can call us at 206-302-2064, or you can use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. This weekend is your last chance to catch Hump's Greatest Hits Volume 3. You don't want to miss it. It is another great mix of kinky, funny, sexy, one-of-a-kind, dirty movies, all for you, curated by me, all from the last 16 years of the Hump Film Festival. Go to humpfilmfest.com to get your tickets today. And we're doing another sack lunch. That's our online hangout exclusively for Savage Love Cast Magnum subscribers on June 3rd at noon Pacific time. We'll talk about that week's Love Cast. I'll answer as many of your questions as I can get to. And we will all get to know each other a little better hanging out in that chat room. Go to savagelovecast.com and become a Magnum subscriber today so you can join us for sack lunch. Follow Matt Baum on Twitter at Matt Baum. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Rick Santorum on Twitter at Rick Santorum. Follow him and send me screen grabs of his worst tweets because that asshole blocked me a long time ago. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. Well, I'll be back at you next week in an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.